Support for SyncBook Radio comes from listeners like you. Consider helping to make independent productions like SyncBook Radio possible by becoming a donor. Your generous gift helps to keep these unique voices broadcasting and exploring. Details about how you can help can be found at thesyncbook.com slash donate. Thanks. December 23rd, 1897. Let me pass out beyond the city gate. All day I loitered in those little streets of black-worn houses tottering like the fate that hangs above my head even now and meets prayer and defiance as if not hearing it. They lean these old black streets. A little sky peeps through the gap. The rough stone path is lit just for a little by the sun. And I watch his red face pass over, fade away, to the other streets and other passengers. Saw him take pleasure where the heathens pray. Saw him relieve the hunter of his furs. All the wide world awaiting him, all folk, glad at his coming. Only I must weep. Rise he or sink, my weary eyes invoke. Only the respite of a little sleep, sleep, just a little space of sleep, to rest the fevered head and cool the aching eyes. Sleep for a space, to fall upon the breast of the dear God that he may sympathize. Long has the day drawn out, a bitter frost sparkles along the streets, the shipping heaves, with the slow murmur of the sea half lost in the last rustle of forgotten leaves. Over the bridges past the throngs, the sound, deep and insistent, penetrates the mist. I hear it not. I contemplate the wound, stabbed in the flanks of my dear silver Christ. He hangs in anguish there, the crown of thorns, pierces that palest brow. The nails drip blood. There is the wound. No Mary by him mourns. There is no John beside the cruel wood. I am alone to kiss the silver lips. I rend my clothing for the temple veil. My heart's black night must act the sun's eclipse. My groans play the earthquake till I quail at my own dark imagining. And now, the wind is bitterer, the air breeds snow. I put my Christ away. I turn my brow towards the south steadfastly. My feet must go. Child of Earth, arise and enter the path of darkness. Very honored Herophat. It is your pleasure that the candidate be admitted? It is. Child of Earth, why dost thou request admission into this order? My soul is wandering in darkness, seeking the light of occult knowledge. Child of Earth, bow your head, repeat your full name at length, and say after me. Happy Christmas, little sunshine. Uh, hello and good morning. I am William Morgan, and you are listening to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook.com. We are a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. Today is the 23rd day of December, and this is our 164th broadcast. This morning, we have a, a special helper for this, our solstice season extravaganza, our Christmas elf, Today is Kevin Halcott, writer of the Sync blog Live from the Logosphere, and thus, in this season of light, hopefully we can determine how every man and every woman is a star. And we'll find that illumination with today's very special guest, Richard Kaczynski, author of Perdurabo, The Life of Aleister Crowley, 
published in a beautiful hardcover edition by North Atlantic Books in 2010. Dr. Kaczynski, writer, musician, research scientist, and teacher, has been a student of the Western Hermetic tradition since 1978 and has lectured internationally on these topics since 1990. He is the author of several books, as well as the editor of a number of works on Crowley and magic with a K. He has also appeared on television in the documentaries Secrets of the Occult and Alistair Crowley, The Beast 666. More information about his work can be found on his website, richard-kaczynski.com. Though the name Alistair Crowley instantly conjures visions of diabolic ceremonies and orgiastic indulgences, and while the sardonic Crowley would perhaps be the last to challenge such a view, he was also much more than the beast, as Kaczynski shows in Perdurabo, which traces Crowley's remarkable journey from his birth as the only son of a wealthy lay preacher to his death in a boarding house as the world's foremost authority on magic. Based on Dr. Kaczynski's 20 years of research and including previously unpublished biographical details, Perdurabo paints a memorable portrait of the man who inspired the counterculture and influenced generations as well as becoming one of the most notorious figures in history. Dr. Kaczynski's biography has become the definitive biography of this man known as the Beast, and we are pleased and honored to host him today. Merry Christmas, Richard. How are you? Well, Merry Christmas and a happy solstice and all the same to you. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. You bet. Thank you. So what do you think Alistair Crowley would think about a Christmas celebration of his life's work? Well, he, he jokingly referred to his own birthday as Crowley Mass. Uh, and uh, despite that, um, he noted in some of his diaries that uh, you know, on occasions when people have given him gifts and other uh, tidings of the season. So uh, in many ways, Christmas is uh, part of the culture that he grew up in. But uh, you know, a celebration of his life in any form, uh, I'm sure he would welcome. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm new to Crowley. And so when I found your book... Um, I was really happy because it, it's very readable and very compelling. And but when I find a book like this, I, I'm, you know, I know how it's created. It's like climbing a mountain, one word at a time, one day at a time, one step at a time. But when I meet a mind like yours that can alchemically boil down all this history into this wonderful narrative like you've written, I have to marvel. Did you have an aptitude for academic research and writing as a young person, or is this something that just developed out of your passion for the material? I think it's a little bit of both. I've always written. I mean, since you know, I, I wrote novels when I was in second and third grade, I mean, they were the kinds of novels you expect a second or third grader to write. I've always written, and my background is also in academia. So uh, when I approached the topic of Crowley, which is something that I'd been studying for you know, about a decade, I think when I started actually writing the biography or doing the research for it, um, these two interests kind of came together, um, and I kind of you know, brought them to bear on, you know, on the Crowley biography. And then as far as I'm I'm curious about whether how how you go back you know so so much of your passion is is looking into some material but then finding the documentation and notating that did it seem like you had to retrace your your path at some point? Yeah, well, there was you know when I first started doing the research, this was back in the days before there was you know, all these online resources we have today. So um, at that point, it was really a matter of 
going through all of Crowley's material that I could find and making like a note of his, the names of people that he knew and contacting various libraries that had archives of those people's papers and say, hey, do you have anything by Crowley here? And um, through that very, very tedious process, you know, uncovered quite a lot of, you know, one one or two letter, you know, caches you know, in various you know, libraries around the world. And, you know, today, you know, when I, when I did the re, uh, you know, revised version back in 2010, through resources like Google Books and ProQuest and all kinds of other um, databases which have digitized material um, and made them accessible on the Internet, it made it possible to track down just so much more information than I had in the first edition. So I was really able to kind of expand and, and go into a lot more depth and, and bring these details to life. And that was really exciting for me to uh, have, you know, just find things you know, that that turned up that I hadn't known about before. Hmm. Well, as I mentioned, I, I I don't know why I've had kind of a reluctance to explore his his life and work. Um, but as I read your book, I was really astounded by the literary quality of Crowley's life. There's almost like a mythos about him. He has a a superhero quality. Could you share with our listeners a little bit about the young life of Alec and explain how he became the beast? Sure, sure. And and in a way I can understand the the idea that approaching Crowley could be a daunting thing because he does have this legend about him and depending on what you read on the internet, you know, that legend is daunting and perhaps unsavory. And the the fact of the matter is a lot of this um, information or misinformation that circulates about him um, is less interesting than the actual story. And Crowley, as a as a actual person, is to, to me a very fascinating figure. Um, mm. And it's and he's and it's one that's really hard to boil down to just a a, a single you know pat sentence. You know, he's someone who lived as as a poet, as a writer, as a as a philosopher, as an occultist, as a mountain climber, as a world traveler. So there's so many sides to his life. But um, a lot of it boils down to his, his upbringing. Um, I think it's the, the, the facts of his childhood have a lot to do with how he turned out and what he was able to do um, in adulthood. And he was the child of a lay preacher in the Plymouth Brethren faith, or the Brethren, as I prefer to refer to themselves. Um, but it's a very um, fundamentalist sect of Christianity that um, believed that the return of Christ was imminent, and that and, and they already believed in a literal interpretation of the Bible. Um, they you know, kind of frowned on things like savings accounts, because that showed that you didn't believe that Christ was about to return, and you know, they, they didn't celebrate Christmas because they thought it was a pagan holiday, um, or at least, you know, the, the trappings of the celebrations were. And so it was a very, uh, again, a very fundamentalist, very literal interpretation of the Bible, very strict upbringing. And um, the the other factor that has a lot to do with um, his life and his reaction against this uh, very strict religious upbringing was the fact that his family was also wealthy. Um, they were descended from a family of brewers uh, from the, the company Crowley and Company and Crowley Ales, 
and um, Crowley's own father had taken his inheritance from that money and reinvested it in waterworks and some other things, and um, railways, for instance, and built up, you know, continued to build up the fortune from that. And when Crowley's father died um, of of um, cancer of a tongue, which strikes strikes me as very ironic for someone who was a lay preacher. Um, Crowley inherited the equivalent today of about $7 million, and that allowed him to travel the world, um, explore other religions and philosophies, publish his books, finance his mountaineering expeditions, and um, and so on. So both these things, the religion and the, that background that it gave him in the Bible, but also the impetus to kind of react against it, um, kind of set him in motion, and uh, the money... Um, kind of gave him the ability to, you know, follow, you know, where his heart led him. And and maybe that's where I'm finding this kind of superhero quality, where as a young man he has these passions of poetry, chess, and mountain climbing, but then he's a gentleman of leisure, and he belongs to these type of clubs that seem yeah. to exist only in in stories for me. Yeah, it's kind of kind of interesting. There's a letter from him uh, written toward the end of his life where he's where he asks someone, you know, have have you you know conversed with the great artists and painters and writers of history? Have you seen the great works of art and museum? Have you walked on mountains where no human foot has trod before? And he said, you know, I've, you know, have you traveled all around the world and conversed with people from all kinds of different lands? He says, no, I haven't done these things. And so understand that any remarks I make come from that perspective. Um, and, and I think in him saying that, it wasn't so much he was trying to say, I'm better than you, but just to say, you know, I've, I've had a very different life experience from you, and these experiences determine how I see the world. Well... In doing this show for a while now, I found this connection or correspondence between one's material life and then also their spiritual life. And and this is larger than just metaphor. What do you make of the fact that that Crowley was Crowley, excuse me, was a mountain climber and not not a hobbyist either? And and how does that speak to what he became in in his larger life? Well, in a couple of ways. One is, you know, and again, for the, your listeners who might not know, Crowley took up mountain climbing as a form of physical exercise to recover from a, a physical ailment he had in his teen years, and he really took to it. And in addition to climbing the, the usual places in the Alps and whatnot on holiday, he actually climbed mountains in Mexico and he did a chalk cliff climbing in you know the British Isles and also took on some of the mountains you know in the in the Himalayan regions. So um, and in many cases he set world records for you know, climbing to heights that had, had been climbed before or scaling certain mountains for the first time. And so many of his records held, you know, for, until, you know, after he died, you know, um, and were broken ultimately like in the 50s and so on. And some of his ascents, like on some of the chalk cliffs in Britain, um, are, are unrepeatable because some of those places have kind of decayed and uh, because of the nature of the soft chalk, you know, have eroded over time and are no longer there. Um, so yeah, he was pretty serious about this, and um, one of his mountain climbing pals, a fellow by the name of Oscar Eckenstein, who was the inventor of the crampon, which was kind of a claw, you know, metal claw that you 
put on um, almost like cleats that you would uh, strap onto your climbing boots that would allow you traction on ice. And uh, Eckenstein teased Crowley about his mystical pursuits and said, you know, you don't know anything about concentration. And so on their climb, so he would you know, say, try and think of just one thing, you know, stop your mind from running around. Just think of one thing for like a minute. Can you do that? And uh, so Oscar Eckenstein, who was not, so far as we know, a mystic of any sort, um, really kind of gave Crowley essentially some some very practical instructions in what in yoga would be called dharana or concentration. So in some ways, strangely enough, his mountain climbing and his mystical pursuits kind of intersected. And, and in fact, it is it was while mountain climbing um, you know, in Europe that he had occasion to bump into a member of the Golden Dawn and thereby gained his introduction to that society. As far as synchronicity goes, then, you mentioned that he bumped into someone that opened a door to where his future led, and I think the same thing was true about his poetry life, too, where he met his publisher by finding a work that led him to Smithers, I believe. Yes, what, Leonard Charles Smithers. What, what role does synchronicity play in Crowley's life? Well, certainly I think the biggest one is his bumping into Julian Baker, who was the uh, Golden Dawn member um, that he encountered in a, in a tavern you know, uh, while, while down from the mountain. And as the story goes, you know, Crowley was expounding on alchemy, and George Sissel, or, or Sir Julian Baker um, was himself a chemist and kind of approached Crowley, and Crowley suddenly felt, you know, like a bit of a jerk, like he was, like he was out of his depth. Um, but then, you know, Julian Baker said, "Hey, I can introduce you to this uh, a group of people you might be interested in back in London," and um, you know that that can open the door to um, you know Crowley's life. But certainly, I think Crowley was one of those people who was on the lookout for synchronicity. Um, you know, for him, it was a, a sign from the gods that he was, you know, on on the right path. So. You know what? You know a a magic number. You know a significant number in his cosmology is the number ninety-three, which happens to be the numerical value of words like uh, philema or will and agape, which is love in Greek. And so, if he had the opportunity to rent a place where the street address was ninety-three, he jumped at that as being you know a, a significant you know synchronicity. So um, you know in his later years, he lived on ninety-three German Street. Um, earlier in the 1910s, he had a studio. Um, the offices of the Equinox um, were, I'm trying to think, it was like 93 Studio Road or something like that. I'm, I'm kind of blanking on the exact address. But these are things that certainly he, he grabbed onto. You know, whenever there was a synchronicity, he, he latched onto it as a sign from the gods that he was on the right track. And then how does one square that idea of synchronicity and this? message from the gods and and his notion of of imposing your will upon matter or reality yeah um, i don't see an inherent conflict there um you know in crowley's commentaries on the, the nature of of finding one's will and, and and again i think the differences between the concept of will and of imposing one's will 
because um, Crowley would look at the, the, you know, when he would say, do what the world should be the whole of the law, which was kind of the famous line attributed to him, um, you know, he wasn't really saying, do whatever you want. He was saying, you know, find out the thing that you're here to do. You know, what what is your essence? What is What, what are you? And be that thing. And in um, so doing, you would actually be living in harmony with the universal will that you'd be you'd be kind of playing out your part in the great machine of the cosmos and so your will and universal will are not at odds with each other and um, that's what makes it so much easier to you know make things happen because you're 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 moving in the direction that the universe wants you to move in um so so in that sense the idea that you know, there would be signs from the cosmos, whether it be, you know, the gods or nature or however you want to define it. You know, there are more like signposts along the way, you know, in my mind, say that, yeah, you're on the right track. And and, and here's kind of, you know, here's kind of a, a sign saying that you're going the right way. And when things go 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 south, then that's kind of a sign from the universe again, kind of saying, well, you know, you're kind of, you're kind of losing your way there. That's really fascinating because... I mean, so that that message sounds real similar to Joseph Campbell's "Follow Your Bliss," but it seems like, as an outsider, Crowley's definitely more of a hedonistic. Uh, it seems like if his message has been co-opted by pop culture, then, like it's a it's a, a reason to live fast and die hard. Yeah, and I think that's kind of unfortunate because I think Crowley is pretty clear that uh, that in his mind, do what thou wilt isn't really a, is, is a license to do anything. I mean, certainly he he sees it as a doctrine of freedom, but it's a doctrine of freedom to be yourself. But he also says that you know you, you need to not get distracted from being yourself by things that are not part of you. You know, things that are not part of your essence. Um, so in, in a way, he says that this really is a very disciplined sort of path. That you're 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 so busy being yourself that you don't really allow these other distractions um, in life that that could you know, tempt you away from that. Okay, that yeah, that's great because for for the longest time I interpreted that similar to Ayn Rand's uh, kind of philosophy of selfishness. Would you say there's there's not much similarities, or am I just crazy? Well, hmm, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, I, I I don't I'd have a I don't know I'm, I'm not sure that I, I would see. Growth philosophy necessarily being selfish. I mean, it certainly it is. Um, it's it's self-centered, and that it's kind of focused on you being true to yourself. Um, but but at the same time, um, I don't. And it it um, Crowley also has a very strong. Fully, you know, he extends his philosophy to. Um, you know what Philema has to do not only with yourself, but also has to do with you know the, the, your duty, therefore, to you know your your fellow human beings, to society, and to the world as a whole. So um, Crowley's philosophy is more expansive than just focusing on yourself, but it's, it also includes you know your your 
your relationship of yourself to the world and the people around you. Well, this is great then. I'm I'm getting a whole different perspective today. Good, good. And then, I mean, part of what we're doing is separating some of the mystique from the reality. Is there is there any more anecdotes you could relate in in terms of that? In terms of separating the myth from the reality. Yeah, the myth of Crowley being the devil. Oh. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's a just a laundry list of um, stories that people like to tell about Crowley that are um, inaccurate. You know, one 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 of the biggies. You know, in fact, he he fought a court case about this, um, and, and fortunately, he did not win. But um, it was basically a a book by a former student of his remarked that when he was living in Italy, the villagers were afraid that he practiced black magic, and he tried to sue the student for libel. It wasn't that he so much had an act to grind with the student, but he kind of figured, oh, you're with a wealthy publisher. This is a chance for you know, you to get some publicity and for me to get some cash out of this. Um, but um, he was absolutely sincere in, in rejecting the idea that he did black magic. Um, and that you know, he, he thought that was you know, debasing magic and that it was also harmful to yourself and he tried to make let him make clear and and he took the courts in this case was an opportunity to say you know that's that's not me and um he he was basically a victim of the the tabloids in the 1920s um just branding him you know the wickedest man in the world and things like that and um so later in the 1930s he tried to kind of react against that and kind of set the record straight. But unfortunately, you know, the, the damage was kind of done. And, you know, in this case where he tried to say, you know, I'm not a black magician, you know, the, the courts basically said, well, you know, you've, you've got a pretty bad reputation. So for someone to call you a black magician is hardly surprising. <laughs> and, and so I didn't really find that, you know, any damage had been done to his reputation because uh, of all the damage that had been done previously, basically. And then magic with a K. What is the the K? What kind of distinction does that add? Yeah. Well, Crowley wanted to distinguish what he was talking about from from stage magic or you know any kind of you know deception or uh, or even charlatanism um, that he wanted to say this is some you know unauthentic you know approach to you know the art of you know, ceremonial magic, and by um, adding the K to the end, um, which is kind of an old-style spelling of, of the word, uh, but he wanted to distinguish what he was talking about from sleight of hand. And, um, yeah, I guess that's <laughs> basically his, his purpose in spelling it that way. And, um, you know, people have kind of elaborated about how, the, you know, the, the letter K is... Um, the 11th letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and that the number 11 is also kind of, is kind of important in the symbolism of Crowley's magic. And um, Crowley, being a, a Kabbalist as well, would certainly have been aware of those things. So um, I'd like to chime in for a question. Um, I was wondering, uh, Richard, what you might be able to say to listeners about um, kind of the, the nature of Crowley's um, magical path in seeking knowledge and conversation with one's holy guardian angel. And uh, so much of Crowley's life was um, enriched and expressed through his relationship to these 
higher states of consciousness and higher forms of self. And his work teaches about the attainment of genius. And um, I was wondering if you could speak to maybe, do you think that, you know, Hollywood and artists and culture are attracted to Crowley because the Holy Guardian Angel concept is kind of a new aspect of our vocabulary that people can pursue as artists and, you know, just as individuals. Um, do you feel that that has kind of increased his relevance in culture as, as art and philosophy expands? Yeah, um, I, I'm not sure to what extent the, the idea of knowledge and conversation with Holy Guardian Angel um, is, you know, appeals to in general to the the, the pop his popular popularity in modern culture because that's that's kind of getting a little deep into what he was about. But um, I I do think that one of the things, at least for for me, when I first discovered Crowley, part of the appeal was that you know a lot of the material that he writes um, is very autobiographical. Um, so you've got not only his confessions, but like in his journal, The Equinox, you know, he publishes extracts of his diaries and things like that to, and to, to illustrate how he went about the magical work. And so in many ways, his life story kind of becomes a, a how-to manual. And you know, if you've got some, some wisdom to kind of step back and look at Crowley's mistakes, it also serves as a how-not-to manual. But, uh, you know, but the idea that um, you know, it's, it seems to me his life is basically saying, hey, here's things, I did these things, and this is what happened. And you know, if you do these things, you can reasonably expect something similar to happen as well. Um, at the same time, he was also a um, a very pragmatic and skeptical sort of person, and certainly acknowledged that what worked for him may not work for everybody or anybody, and that everyone needs to kind of experiment and um, you know use what he called scientific illuminism to find the the methods of spirituality that work for 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 them, and um, you know to the extent to which Crowley. Um, a lot of his magical working really involved kind of contacting these uh, spirit beings or intelligences or denizens of other planes of existence, you know, whatever you want to call them, um, but that he spent a lot of time trying to contact and learn from and gain inspiration from those sorts of experiences. Um, I think that sort of thing is something that he, that, that he does share in common with a lot of artists and writers and other visionaries and that, um, you know, they are, you know, that in essence, it's all trying to get in touch with, um, that, that, uh, something that inspires you, you know, and, and gives you, you know, a, a vision to, uh, you know, manifest whether it be in magic or on canvas or on paper. That's great. Yeah, I agree. Do you, I mean, one of the topics that's, arising lately is the idea that, that science is opening up to a larger realm than it has been in a materialistic world. Do you think, do you, do you have any any thought that perhaps figures like Crowley will be used as, as doorways to a deeper understanding of reality and science in the future? In some ways, I mean, they're, 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 I think it's a pendulum that kind of swings both ways. And that you know, when you have people like you know, Fritzoff Capra, you know, who wrote the, the Tao of Physics, um, talking about how 
a lot of things you read in Western mysticism seem to echo the writings of quantum physics. Um, there, there certainly does seem to be resonances, um, but there is also, on the other hand, there are people who who are very, um, you know, more and more hardline materialistic, and or maybe even just you know deeper into the the actual science of it. But this says, well, you know, the, there may be some similarity in the language, but they're not at all the same. You know, so you're going to get people on both sides of that that debate. Um, you know, but at the same time, you know, what I think is very compelling about Crowley is that he tried, you know, he does try to say, you know, use these tools of science to kind of get a better understanding of your your mystical pursuits. That you can, you can, you know, keep a diary, you can, or a log of your own experiments. You can keep track of. You know what your intentions were. Come back and look to see if those things worked. And by being skeptical and by you know critically evaluating your your work, you can you can you can look at it with with an eye that's that is again very scientific in nature. Um, even though how these things work may not be obvious to science, you can still use the method. And um, that's why his journal, The Equinox, you know, its its motto was the method of science, the aim of religion. Um, and I'm also reminded of, I think it was Bill Moyers, um, who in one of his documentaries kind of talks about how um, dogs you know, learn about the world through their noses. You know, they have this great sense of smell, they need to sniff everything. And however useful that sense of smell may be for informing the dog's understanding of the world, um, it's not the same thing as using, say, engineering or or science. And um, he also says that that's that that may be the case with 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 science in general. That you know, science is a useful tool, but it may not be the best tool for understanding everything that's going on in um, in, in in spiritual pursuits. And he kind of likens that to using the sniff test to prove or disprove the existence of God, that uh, they're kind of different things in, the, in, in essence, and that you got to use the right tool for the right job. So how do you, how do you think Crowley will be remembered 100 years from now? Do you think, in, in terms of science and, and what he's done and his legacy? Well, I'm hoping that he'll certainly be remembered in a better light than he was, you know, in the years after his death and during his life. Um, I think he's being recognized more as being a an influential figure in, in a lot of different areas, and people are recognizing that he did have an impact on um, writing, not only through his own writing, but through his contact with other writers, um, that he had some real revolutionary ideas that that turn up in theater and in, in art and um, and so on. Um, yeah, I think he'll be remembered as um, a, a a synthesizer of ideas. Um, you know, it's kind of easy to take for granted the idea that um, you know that we that we have access to really good information about, uh, say, yoga and things like that in, in the West. Um, but that was not the case in his lifetime, and he was one of the first people to actually. You know, he actually, you know, he lived in in, in India and studied Hinduism there. Um, you know, you know, on site, and kind of 
brought back what he learned and incorporated it into his practice of magic. So it's it's not just Western occultism, but he infused a great deal of uh, Eastern practices as well into it. And it's it's become so commonplace today that we can't take for granted how how cutting edge that was. Um, and you know, again, I think you know, in science itself that's a little trickier because I don't know that Crowley really distinguished himself as a scientist, although he certainly thought that his his philosophy of Thelema did underpin scientific principles and yeah, he tried to get some of his pals like a GWN Sullivan who was a mathematician, you know, was supposed to uh, write a uh, you know mathematical analysis of the book of the law and kind of talk about the the, math, the mathematical basis for a lot of what it talks about. Um, but unfortunately that never happened because that would have been uh, wonderful to see. But uh, Crowley was certainly um, always, you know, he was in touch with a lot of thinkers of his day and even like in his uh, soft tarot deck, you know, he has, you know, references to cutting edge science. So, uh, you know, you'll see, you know, the, these Mobius figures and you'll see tables of elements and things like that kind of hidden in the cards. You know, if you know what you're looking for, they're there. Or if you read the book, he kind of talks about it. But he was always, you know, trying to, to, say cutting edge and I think that's again a, a lesson for all of us you know it's very easy to kind of just stick back with what Crowley thought but what but Crowley's example is that of you know reading the modern you know the current literature but you know whether it be you know the, the the state of the art in studying you know ancient societies um, or whether it be the state of art in philosophy or science I and mean, he was he was keeping up with all of that in his lifetime, and I think that's a lesson for all of us that there are so, so many great resources in, you know, the study of whether it be you know, ancient religions, Hinduism, Kabbalah, or whatnot, um, or whether it be scientific advances that um, have implications for the things that we're all interested in. Um, it behooves us to stay to stay on the cutting edge and keep up with all of that because these things do interrelate. Yeah. Um, one of the more interesting things anecdotally is that it seems like his tarot cards are, are the the cards that people are responding to that I, that I notice. It seems like they're becoming the default deck. But as far as, as a writer goes, as someone new to him, what, what should I read initially in his own words? And then, um, and then what are you working on as a writer to wrap it all up? Crowley's a, a, a tough one to get into, um, and the, part of the reason that is that he, at least when you're writing technically about magic, he's, he's often writing for students of his who had access to um, you know, papers that were privately circulated, some of which were later published, but you know, not at the time that he was writing, and he's constantly referring to other things you know, in, in his body of work. So it's it's kind of a kind of a daunting spider web of things, you know, to to read through his material. Um, you know, one book that I've I found that that, that I had the opportunity to actually co-edit, and I was very excited to have that opportunity, was a collection of essays called The Revival of Magic and other essays. And what this collection did was it gathered things that Crowley wrote kind of for the popular press. And so he tried to explain his philosophy and his thinking 
um, in, in layman terms. So it's not so much written for the hardcore student, but it's written for a regular person to understand. And, um, and I, find, I find that to be a real accessible way of, you know, approaching Crowley. Um, one, one book, I think, you know, from going back to the, the, the yoga material that I talked about, um, there's a collection of papers that he wrote um, uh, called Eight Lectures on Yoga. And again, this is something that he presented uh, as a series of public talks. And um, he did this kind of late in his life, so he's had a lot of time to, re to reflect on it. And I find the eight lectures on yoga is just, it's, it's really approachable and it's funny and it's a profound and it's a very uh, accessible introduction to yoga if that's a, a subject that you're interested in. Um, you know, um, otherwise, you know, the, one of the things you can do is there's, there's this book, you know, Magic. It's, you know, we kind of affectionately call it the, the big blue brick. It's a big, thick book, and it it's, uh, takes a lot of work to plow through, but the, the newest edition, um, you know, that's available through Wiser Books um, is, you know, is, is very well annotated and has a really good introduction. And, again, like, uh, as you said, a Perdurabo, it's it may not be the most... Uh, easy read because there's a lot of information and it's something you might read more slowly and savor, but uh, there's, you know, it's, it's just chock full of information. Um, so that's, those are, I guess, free recommendations that I might make for Crowley. And as, as for myself, you know, I've, um, in terms of my writing projects, I've kind of branched out into kind of uh, looking at some of the people surrounding Crowley's circle. Um, since writing Perdurabo, I've, I've brought out a book called Forgotten Templars. The Untold Origins of Ordo Templi Orientis, and it looks at not only the founders of Ordo Templi Orientis, but um, how, the, how the organization came to be, so places it in the context of um, esoteric Freemasonry and, and other kinds of movements, you know, the, the Bavarian Illuminati and some of the, you know, the, the, the German um, movements to kind of reclaim, you know, all their folk ways and folk traditions, things like that, and how all that kind of informs, um, you know, the, the organization, how it came to be. And I'm also working in a collection of essays by uh, Victor Neuberg and J.F.C. Fuller, who were two of Crowley's earliest and, you know, most, most uh, significant students. Um, and, you know, and other people um, that were part of Crowley's circle. That's one thing I thought was he did surround himself with very interesting people. And uh, as I look more and more into those interesting people, I find, you know, a reason to appreciate them, you know, on their own merits. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You bet. You've been listening to Richard Kaczynski on SyncBook Radio, a production of thesyncbook.com. Information about the work of Dr. Kaczynski can be found on his website, richard-kaczynski.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you'd like to support the show, we urge you to become a donor. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website and consider setting up a monthly charge. Thanks so much, and in this season of light, do what thou wilt.
is the way I feel When it's real I keep it alive The is long There are mountains In our way But we climb A stair Every day Where the 